0: This is Restless Summer. Hey, we are going to jump right back in to our interview with Aaron Wren this Restless Summer. Last week, we talked about a lot of interesting things, including church planting. We left off discussing the church and if you need church plants to effectively evangelize communities. Aaron is going to start this interview talking about some small rural churches and what they were able to do. We then are going to go on to discuss the elites, elitism. Is that good? Is that bad? And the only thing I think you need to know before you leave this episode is create a plan to not be a grill American. All right. I hope you have a good restless summer. Let's get back to the interview.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the church I grew up in, which is a rural um, Pentecostal church, probably started in the 1970s, maybe the 1980s. It may have been started in the early 1980s. And it was, you know, home visiting my mom. So we went to church on one Sunday and a, a pastor there told a story. And he started a story that like he was sitting in his office and he saw this car pull into the parking lot and there was a woman in the car, and she didn't come in. She was just sitting in the parking lot. So he walks out to the car, and there's this woman her kids in the car. He's like, yeah, can I, can I help you? And she proceeds to say, I've been off drugs three days. I don't know how I'm going to make it, but I heard that people can get help at this church. Wow. And he's like, that's what we want to be known as. We want to be known as the place... Where you can find help. And so, when you have a church like that that is ministering to many, many people with drug problems, you know, problems with criminality, like that, the chaplain of the county jail is attending there. They have huge, they have halfway houses. You have no shortage of potential supply of converts, you know, when you are ministering to people who are in real trouble and you've got a neck. And so, even though this church is not new anymore, they still make a lot of converts because of the nature of how they do ministry. And, you know, when you're, you know, and so I think that, you know, this idea that older churches can't, can't reach people. I don't know that that's entirely true. Um, You know, and, and again, I don't think all churches, you know, need to be doing the same thing. Right. Um, You know, so, you know, maybe the role of a Presbyterian church is going to be a different uh, than that is, as I like to say, you know, most Presbyterian churches, you know, they, they, you know, they, we write checks to people who do that kind of stuff. You know, we don't <laughs> actually do it directly. I, and again, you, see, I look at it, I, you know, I, you know, my old church in New York, it's on the Upper East Side. You know, it's like serving the. You know, there are homeless in the neighborhood. And it's like you know, they work with homeless, uh, homeless, homelessness ministries. But you're just in a different you're just in a different environment. You know when you're right. kind of working class, you know rural Indiana, you got people with a lot of problems out there. So it's uh that's the you know the field there. But I I do think they like this idea that they can't they can't make converts. Well, who's who are they trying to make converts of? Right. You know, there are so many. Is one of my theories um, on what I've labeled the negative world is, you know, the world becomes you know more hostile to Christianity or America becomes more hostile to Christianity. You one of the ways that you do. The Great Commission is to be the lighthouse and the safe harbor for people who are experiencing the consequences of the way that this world operates, right? which can often be very severe for people. And there are so many hurting people in this world that if you, so many, think about how many people are lonely. Right. So many people are lonely. I used to notice this in um, New York that there were people on church on Sunday morning, you could just tell that the reason they were there was to try to find some sort of community or find Mm. that. And, you know, when you read about academics of loneliness, when you look at the, the drug abuse, when you look at all these things that are happening in the world, there there's like an infinite range of serious problems that people have, you know, that the church is, is willing to, um, you know, the church is able to, I think, speak very powerfully, you know, into that with the power, you know, of the gospel. That's what I think, you know, when Jesus said it was, you know, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man, you know, to enter the kingdom of heaven, there's a part of it, you know, when your life seems to be put together, you yep. don't really perceive your need, you know, for the gospel. Somebody who's got big problems knows that there's, there's, there's a problem. Or it's like my, uh, Uh, my brother puts it uh, rich people go to therapy poor people go to church Mm. and there's something like when you're trying to reach sort of a a bourgeois audience uh you know it's like my goodness the upper middle class people it's very hard to reach them through evangelism but it's like why is that the only target market right that we have in america there's a lot of people you know that i think there's a the the fields are white to the harvest
0: yes i I, that's a good word it's one of the mottos that i'm trying to get to catch on is like make presbyterianism normal again or make <laughs> presbyterianism poor again right just like there are if we would yeah you could you could turn your attention to you know, all the kinds of people you're talking about you know um with ministry and you would um yeah in many places have no problem with the harvest
1: now i've also said i mean there's no shame in in trying to reach the elite and, yep. you know, the, the elite need the gospel. They may need it more in some right. respects because they don't know that they need it. And so uh, I think having having churches that serve an elite audience, um, you, you know, that are forming elites to really lead in our society, that, that's an important role. So I, I don't want to denigrate that too much. But this, I, just, I just want to push back on this idea that only new churches are capable of doing evangelism. Yep. Uh, I don't think that that's true.
2: So let's push into that just a little bit. What you just one of the things that you've talked about that I find really interesting is that you are not so hard on um, those who are elite as elite, right? So you have defended, in a sense, uh, elitism before, and there does seem to be a pretty strong anti-elitism, at least among certain uh, sectors of the conservative world, even if it's inconsistent at times. But I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Why? Why is I guess, elitism necessary. As we've talked about institutions, what about the elite?
1: Well, every society is going to be run by elites. The only question is whether your elites are any good. (laughs) And, you know, in the era of the old WASP establishment, we had elites that were formed through a Protestant tradition. It was a liberal Protestant tradition, uh, but it was still a Protestant tradition and there was an ethos associated with that, and they had a very institution, they had very institutional mindsets and very much a, a sense of stewardship over the country, which they sort of viewed as their property, you know, in a sense. Um, you know, today, you know, our elites are not very good in America; uh, they're clearly failing us. You know, you can even go back to the nineteen seventies. You know, when things were going bad in America in the nineteen seventies watergate oil embargo stagflation all of that you know american elites kind of got together and i might say it literally happened you know in a, in a room but like the i said like hey, you know we need to make some reforms mm-hmm. and so we need to deregulate some of these industries we're, we're overregulated in our economy and so deregulation s- happened under jimmy carter started under jimmy carter he was one of initiated deregulation and it continued into the Reagan administration and Reagan's success in deregulation probably would not have occurred had there not already been an elite consensus that we needed to make some reforms because America was not doing so well. Mm-hmm. And so we made a lot, you know, made some reforms in that era. Like today, do we have an elite that's capable of making needed reforms? Hmm. And today our problem is not that we suffer from an you know excess of regulation in the sense that we did in the seventies, um, not clear what all of our problems are, but, you know, we don't have an elite that are really capable of doing that. And evangelicalism has, you know, is a middle-class phenomenon, uh, you know, or, you know, you could even say like a, you know, working-class phenomenon. It's got a middle-class mindset to it. uh, And that's really not a mindset of being an elite leader or running organizations. There's the famous book about the, uh, scandal the evangelical mind, uh, you, you know, and so I, I do think this idea, kind of evangelicalism has always been a little bit more experiential, uh, less intellectual, less elite, you know, and more middle class in orientation, which is not bad. There's a lot of virtues in the middle class, uh, but, you know, the middle class uh, culture is not the culture that's needed to lead society or organizations.
2: Yeah, I was reading a book. I can't remember what this came from now that I'm about to say it, but I was reading uh, once or listening to a book and it was talking about um, the aristocracy in, I, I don't remember where exactly this was, but somewhere in Europe. And it was talking about just the aristocratic mindset. And it spoke of how, you know, there would be these aristocrats who would go and they would plant a tree with the intent that it would be there to, you know, bear fruit for their great grandchildren when they were long gone. And, you know, I just thought this is why they were the aristocrats. That was what I thought. I thought, you know, like these, these uh, men who are thinking ahead generationally and thinking, this is how I'm going to establish my family and my line and how I'm going to set up the next generations in order that they might rule. Um, It, It makes sense to me why they would then end up in positions of greater authority. Um, So this is one of the things when I think about the elite, uh, it just makes me think, Okay, well, I do. Like you said, I want I want an elite, but I want a good one.
1: Yeah, I mean, Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America talks all about that. He contrasts the aristocratic mindset with the democratic uh, mindset. And, you know, he saw democracy, you know, as inevitable and superior but he recognized that that would entail some losses, uh, you know, as well. And, you know, we are, you know, a democratic country with a democratic mindset. We're also a country shaped by the frontier. You know, the idea of leaving and going to the frontier, go West, young man, very powerful. So Americans are the people of exit, right? That's, Mm. yeah. You know, we're the people who leave and go start new things. That sort of restlessness is in the American character, uh, and it's it's very powerful it's what enabled us to essentially kind of tame a continent and all the things that we built if we didn't have that restless spirit uh, about us the frontier experience of America is really one of the uh, things that sort of been edited out of American identity uh, something to go back and and think more about a lot of people today really don't give you the straight scoop on American history to be honest but this this you know the frontier is, key to american identity and american mindset is is very important so you know by nature we're sort of middle class we're leavers we're go start the new thing you know etc the
0: is there here's the problem for our average listener is that is there pretty much nothing they can do about the state of the elites uh in the country at this point, right? Because I feel like it's a pretty, or at least most people recognize, hey, there's a problem with the people who who rule us, who lead us, right? I think that that's, you know, pretty common. But I, I think most people feel basically powerless over the situation.
1: Be the elite you want to see in the world, <laughs> as the quip may go. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that I say is, if we don't like the current elite, how can we uh, prepare ourselves to be able to exercise leadership, to exercise authority ourselves? Uh, How do we do that? How do we lead well and execute well within our span of control, which may only be in our homes, maybe for a lot of people, only their homes, probably not a, a great elite leadership happening in the homes of a lot of evangelicals. To be a good elite in and, and institutional steward of your church, there are a lot of domains in which people can do things. Also think about, you know, who are you interested in promoting, elevating, voting for? Is it the purely the uh, bomb-throwing e-celeb who wants to own the libs or something of that nature? Or, or do you reward like serious people? And so I've been a big critic of American leadership. I think our problems primarily result from a defective elite, but let's not pretend that the American people are this phenomenal reservoir of, you know, healthy living and, um, you know, good decision-making and and a lot of the values. I mean, I look at the problems of my own state Mm -hmm. of Indiana. A lot of the problems that we have in our state are the result of the preferences of the people who live here. We just Mm -hmm. have to take that you know yes our leader bad but the followers uh have to take some responsibility um as well Hmm. you know and they've been responsive to uh you know they've been responsive to rhetoric and they've got preferences that just don't Hmm. lead to success yeah Uh, i think if you look at uh if you look back to the era of kind of the establishment, America was less democratic hmm. in a sense. Uh, for example, you know, presidential nominees used to by and large be selected by party insiders yep. at conventions and the like. We didn't have a lot of primary elections, you know, as we've many people, I'm not the only person who said this is a lot of people have said the move to primary elections away from caucuses and conventions and those sorts of things has really led to you know, a promotion of sort of demagoguery, weaker institutions, all sorts of things that are negative about our politics result from, uh, an excess of democracy there. There's a, uh, a book, I think it's Garrett Jones at, uh, is it George Mason. He wrote a book called 10% less democracy. It's basically his, his prescriptions. We just need to have 10% less democracy. Um, you know, I think we, we sometimes fetishize democracy when in fact, you know, uh, lots of people have been skeptical of democracy and the, re, the, the, yep. the American system was set up specifically to not be particularly democratic. Yep. I mean, you look at things like direct election of senators. We, you know, we did a lot of things to introduce more and more and more democracy into the system. And, uh, you know, I think some of the results, uh, you know, then the extent to which you've gone to a more democratic system, then the voters and the people have to accept more responsibility, mm. you know. In a monarchy, you can blame the king for everything. In a democracy, you have to take some responsibility for yourself. And yeah. so, we have to be, you know, equip ourselves to be better leaders, and also become better followers.
0: Mm. I think that that is that's good, and I, I think it's it, it it's funny to think that if we do have a problem with the elite if the cream still rises to the top, it might be a problem with, you know, the batch of, you know, what's rising. Um, I think this reminds me just of uh, just one other thing I want to make sure our audience hears. I know you've talked about it at least once, and I just thought it was so profound and actually relates a little bit to these problems of lack of action in institutions in churches in, in becoming, uh, elite in, in any domain, you can this this dynamic of the grill American. Uh, can you tell Can you tell our audience what a grill American is?
1: Well, I didn't coin that term. It, it may All have right. been the uh, neo reactionary writer Curtis Yarvin who coined it. I saw it on the internet. Yeah, that was yeah. a great expression. They used the term "grill American," and the grill American, and this, is is this what I mean by the middle class mindset? The grill America is a middle class suburbanite who all he wants to do is to be left alone to grill in his backyard and watch the NFL on his big screen TV and things like that. He's very focused on sort of small personal pleasures uh, of that nature. Uh, the petite bourgeoisie mindset uh, a, a little bit there. yeah. And those people basically are not especially interested in you know big social issues or society it's basically the leave me alone so i can grill mindset and a lot of conservatives fall into that and uh, you know this uh, one guy i know he's got this quip silence is violence beats don't tread on me any day of the week sure. you know one is about advancing a moral position the other is just leave me alone and so you have a lot of people who whose basic view is you know, I just want to sit here in, in my backyard and grill and be left alone. And as long as I can do that, I'm happy. And when something starts affecting that, then they get upset. You know, but otherwise, you know, the society at large doesn't really matter too much to them. And again, that's probably the norm. You know, most people are really kind of going to fall into that um, uh, kind of mode of thinking. Uh, and that's why you have to have, like, again, leadership who can lead. and is isn't just essentially a roll-up of democratic preferences um, as well. It's worth reflecting on uh, why aristocrats and why to the intellectual elite and other things have always been so contemptuous of sort of the middle class. Hmm. You know, think about the novels of Sinclair Lewis and the way that he just did this Disdain for the middle class, or think about H.L. Mencken. He just really—they didn't like the middle class. And I think when you look at the contempt that drips off of them, it's very easy to say these just elitist jerks. You know, it just you, you just rebel against that, and and then we can we can go too far in the other direction and sort of lean into the to that. There's a famous quip by William F. Buckley, something to the effect of. I'd rather be governed by the first 300 names in the Boston phone book than the faculty at Harvard. Right. Again, yeah. when he says that, you got to keep in mind he's a Yale man. So he's getting in a dig at Harvard, but it is this sort of mentality. And there was a the guy who aspirationally was aspirationally elite. I mean, he affected all of these wasp mannerisms and things of that nature. Uh, It's sort of this idea that like, yes, the the elites are so bad. Why don't we just put the common man in charge and everything is going to be great? This valorization of sort of the common man and running everything. And I think realistically, that's not a viable way to run the world. You know, when Tocqueville talked about self-governance in the New England town, he was talking about rural areas, small areas with relatively small problems and you can have self-government and that sort of uh, thing. You know, you can't really self-govern the operations of the U.S. military, you know, nice. or something of that nature. Our world is big. It's complex. It's highly technological. It requires a lot of skills, technical knowledge, and expertise in order to administer, uh, you know, this idea that we, we just need to like, empower the kind of the common man more. Uh, there's a point, there's a part of it that's very true. Um, there's a part of that that's very true. I do think people have much greater ability to run their own lives than we'd like to give them credit for, to respond to incentives. But nevertheless, I think we've overvalorized the sort of democracy and, the, and their virtues of the common man. Uh, in again, this comes out of political conservatism, you know, as much as, as religious conservatism, in ways that are unhealthy and Uh, minimize the importance of having a well formed elite prepared to lead institutionally. Either you need, you need, you need both in a republic, or you know, you need both like a virtuous citizenry that's robust, but you also need these leaders, uh, as well. You know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, these guys were elites, right? They were not just you know, random people who happen to find themselves in charge one day.
0: Right. And, and I think you compared these grill Americans and saying that, um, Christians and conservatives who want to see change in their communities or, um, you know, in their churches or, you know, or, you know, in the wider society need to take a lesson from leftists, which, you know, always, which stings a little bit. Right. Um, which may be why you, uh, you put it this way, because they are routinely sacrificing, you know, we'll call it a normal life, right? This, you know, this idealized, normal, suburban life for the sake of the things they want to see advanced.
1: Right. There are a lot of highly educated people on the left who take jobs at NGOs that don't pay very much money and not all of them are just doing their stint at a nonprofit before they apply to grad school there are some people you know resume polishing there but there are a lot of true sure. believers who work for these you know organizations a lot of these activists are you know they're not wealthy people being supported by mom and dad they don't have a trust fund you know it's you know we do have a lot of conservatives that you know for example go to uh, big law go to top law schools where do they end up work? They work in private practice. They pursue business success. They're not as likely to go work in a public interest law firm or, or, or a nonprofit. You know, Whereas some of the environmental firms, the environmental litigation nonprofits that I know, they got like Yale Law School grads lining up to work for peanuts for them. And again, some of them are just doing their stint in the nonprofit world, but they actually have higher values than their own personal consumption of goods and services uh, in their cult home and the cul-de-sac in the suburbs and all of that, and if you don't have something that you value more than consumption, uh, then uh, you know you're 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 sort of hobbled. And you're probably not going to uh, change things. And I I I absolutely believe that thinkers on the left are often quite uh, illuminating and far smarter uh, in a lot of ways uh, than ones on the right. Uh, everybody likes to complain about cultural Marxism of the Frankfurt School. And I wonder how many of these people have actually read any writings by those guys. Mm. If you read Marcuse, it's like, wow, that guy had some profound insights, mm. um, very profound insights and really interesting attitudes towards the world that, there's things you could learn from, even if you don't agree with their moral systems or their views. Uh, they were actually quite sharp, <laughs> uh, you know, in a lot of in a lot of things in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go, you guys. You ever everyone here heard it first that uh, Aaron Ren's a cultural Marxist. I yeah. guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. You know the
1: critical the critical methods of the left are you know powerful and mm-hmm. should be understood if and if not agreed with. Mm. If they're, if they're so wrong, why do they keep winning? You yeah. Ask yourself that. Exactly. Question. If, exactly. You got the tr- if you got the truth, how come you keep losing? Mm. If I'm so smart, why am I not the CEO of this company? You got to ask right. yourself that. Like, why am I not, you know, X, Y, or Z person? Maybe I need to be more reflective. Maybe we all need to be more reflective and think about yeah. like, man, what are we actually missing? Maybe not where are we wrong, but what are we missing? We have to be open to mm. uh, considering that.
2: Do you this think this um, the inability to kind of look at yourself and take that kind of responsibility is one of the reasons for the maybe the the seeming anyway growth in conspiracy theories? Because a conspiracy theory allows you to kind of peg everything on. Well, there's this you know some kind of cabal of elites that are like they're making these decisions, and that's why my life is so messed up. Uh, I I just thought of that while you were talking.
1: Well, the sociologist E. Digby Baltzl. Uh, says that conspiracy theories are a natural outgrowth of the decline in trust of institutions, and so there's probably a connection between the decline of institutions and the rise of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Well, uh, if you go back to maybe the granddaddy of all the conspiracy theories, the JFK assassination, I don't think it it's any accident that that happened just as the establishment was collapsing mm-hmm. and right. trusted institutions in America was collapsing during Vietnam and, you know, those sorts of things. Totally. And so, think, uh, yeah, that's, you know, that you know, if we had trustworthy institutions, there would be fewer conspiracy theories if there were high institutional trust.
0: Totally. This is, this is why I often, um, yeah, I often actually, you know, I'm in, in a, in a small town in Wisconsin. i talk to a lot of people who Harbor a lot of conspiracy theories on various levels. And I actually have a lot of compassion for them because, right, their experiences, I can repeatedly see people telling me things in these many institutions, whether it's the church, media, politics, I know to be false. And then, of course, it becomes very profitable to be the only person who really knows the truth, right? When you can cut the, the siphon of true information down to you that puts you in a very powerful and potentially profitable place. And there's no, um, no, no limit to the people who are willing, you know, willing to put themselves there. And I think, I think one of the things everyone will appreciate if you don't already follow Aaron's writing at the American reformer or his, uh, podcast, the Aaron Ren show, I think you will appreciate because I think it always encourages self reflection, uh, especially for those who are Christians. Um, and those who are conservative, um, in general ways, because I, that's what I appreciate about it. Um, whether it's learning to think institutionally or, um, these discussions of, of what it will take, uh, to, to take the next step forward as Christians in America and in society.
1: Right. If only we had some people behind the scenes, pulling some strings. (laughs) I do think, you know, our, our society does behave as if, it is, there are conspiracy theories because you do see that all of our institutions seem to respond in lockstep to anything, whether it be, you know, think about the war in Ukraine, or you name it, there is a sort of uh, uh, appearance that someone must be sending down a message from Central HQ, when in fact, this is more like a school of fish, uh, all turning uh, mm-hmm. at once, but the, the uh, high degree of synchronization among elites institutions does give off the, uh, appearance of a conspiracy. And so I can understand why people think that even though there's, there's no, there's no actual, uh, there's no actual man behind the curtain. I don't know if that's uh, more terrifying or less terrifying. Right.
0: Thank you, Aaron Wren for coming, being on the show, talking to us, to everyone else, be the elite you want to see in the world. Later.